So, that, so all of that leads me here. Why are we uh-huh. standing on top of a giant landfill? What, like, why did you take me here, and why do I see so many discarded candles? Well, Dave, okay, I wanted you to see firsthand the problem facing the candle industry. Mm. L- let me hit you with this stat. This okay. is actually sit down okay. on all those discarded candles. Ow, 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 ow. Yeah, it's going to be sharp. Almost two billion candles are sold globally each year, and almost all of them are likely to end up in landfills for the next million years. Okay. I, I wouldn't say this to a lot of people, John. Yeah. You're not lying to me because you don't lie to me, John. I, I would never lie, especially about candles. I, saw, I told you that the first years, day we met. That is Gnarls Barkley crazy. Although I must admit, this landfill does smell pretty great compared <laughs> to what I anticipated. The, you know, the candles do kind of pick that part up, but it's disturbing. John. Hey, Dave, yeah. you're funny, but this is no time to I'm joke. So sorry, okay, The dude. folks at Notes yep. knew that we all want our homes to smell great. I do. But figured there had to be a more responsible way. And guess what? They found the perfect solution. What did they come Let up with? Let me tell you. If you'll okay. stop interrupting me, so I'll tell you. So Notes created a refillable candle system that allows you to use your candle vessel again and again. And guess what, Dave? Again. Again. Yes. Please don't interrupt me. So you don't become part of the problem. It's so easy to use. The candles are made with fragranced wax beads, and all you do is place the wick in the reusable notes jar, fill it up with the wax beads, enjoy your fragrance for up to 36 hours, and then just do it all over again when you're ready to get a new one. Oh, so that means I can switch out of fragrances all the time. That's right. That sounds great. I'm checking out their website, and I think I already have my eye on the Centol and Atlas Cedar. Cedar. I knew that would be Plumeria and Pink Current. Yep, Mm. yep, yep. The one that you're enjoying right now, uh-huh. Smell that? Mm, it's vanilla and pepperwood. That's like my two favorite scents. No, and the names of your bunnies, right? That's right. Okay. Yeah, just coincidence there. <laughs> okay. Did you know that there are thirteen amazing fragrances what? in all? Dave, that's almost fourteen oh. fragrances, <laughs> handcrafted <laughs> by fragrance experts at their home base in South Carolina. And they are to die for. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Be a responsible consumer while not giving up on high-quality home fragrance by making the switch to Notes. You can build your custom starter kit right now at notecandles.com slash podcast. Right now, Notes is giving listeners 15% off and free shipping when you buy a Notes starter kit using code DADVILLE. Just use code DADVILLE when placing your order. That's code DADVILLE at notecandles.com slash podcast. Hi, I'm Dave Barnes. And I'm John McLaughlin. And welcome to Dadville. Dadville is a podcast where we talk about life, love, and the pursuit of awesome dadding. It's funny thoughts and deep talks. So please, enjoy your time here in Dadville and enjoy this episode with... John a joy thanks for having we me on we are so pumped to have you on i don't want to oh it's great i'm trying to play it cool but yeah. I, I just want to say up front like this is this is gonna feel like an interview to you hopefully <laughs> but what's actually happening is dave and i are going to be battling hard because we already know we have too many questions <laughs> for the oh, time where where are you guys based where are you you have cool like man cave rooms around you yeah but where are you we're across we're the street from each other, and this is the truth. We are in Nashville, and John literally, if if I wanted to, I could run and be in picture in probably 30 seconds. Amazing. And are you guys musicians, or what's, forgive my ignorance, what's the, what's the like, yeah. background? What do you, how do you guys get to this? 
when we're not modeling, uh, exactly. we do play music. Yeah, there's yeah. kind of a we, hierarchy of things. <laughs> yeah, our <laughs> list of importance. No, so John and I are both musicians. We've been doing uh, what we've done both about 20 years. Um, and, wow. um, you know, just singer-songwriter stuff. John and I met when he was still in college, and he opened for me and one of my best buds, a guy named Matt Wirtz. We were doing shows together. And we kept in touch, and then um, John and his wife are Indiana people, but moved here no, six, seven? Coming John? up on seven years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we've been buds for a long time. And this podcast, you know, it's on Annie's network, you know, Annie Downs' network on her. This, oh, I didn't uh, realize that. that. fun, yeah. Oh, cool. And, yeah, Annie is sort of like um, the third member. She's like the uh, trinity of my marriage. She's like <laughs> sort of the third She's the Holy She's Spirit. She's the Trinity of this marriage. That, 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 does, that sounds wrong on lots of different <laughs> on a lot levels. Of levels. But it's been a good interview. Thanks for your time. Um, but uh, but she's yeah, she's a dear dear friend. And so when she started, John and I had thought about doing this podcast because we sort of realized there wasn't like anything. Um, the dad space for podcast stuff was just kind of wide open, and so we were yeah. like, it'd be really fun to. Um, because we end up, you know, we see each other at least once a day, and he's got two girls. I've got two boys and a girl. Yeah. Um, but some, you know, that celebrated dads and sort of all things dad. And so it's been fun because we get these people on that are known for whatever, but then getting to talk more about that thing is such a fun. You see a yeah. lot of dads, you know, guys who are either whatever space they're in, you know, they're kind of used to talking about, but then kids is always sort of like, whole other ball game yeah it's a whole other thing yeah it's like you just see a total different side of and not just their kids but sort of how they think about parenting or their yeah. families you know all that stuff and in our experience it's like that once we became parents that's kind of that's all i want to talk about that's yeah. all i want to post about you know so it's fun to have wow. like other musicians how, on who yeah they get to talk about you know their life their real life at home and all that so how how old are your kids so we go, don't we stair step? We, Sam is, uh, how old is he? Four. Four. So Dave's got a four-year-old. I got a five-year-old girl. Then Dave's got a little girl, girl, six. And then my, Luca, our oldest little girl is eight. And then I have a nine-year-old boy. Great. Yeah. yeah. So, Love and, it. and how, how old are your three? Uh, 15, 12, and 12. Oh, they're twins. Uh, one's adopted. Oh, I knew. Okay. I felt like when I was walking, I was like, that came in really hot on that. And I could really regret that. That's <laughs> no, okay. Everybody does it. <laughs> no, of course. Yeah. That's amazing. So, so, so it's, again, John said it, and it is the truth. I mean, this, this was, um, we're thrilled you are here. And I think oh, by the yeah. end of it, you might be fatigued just by, if nothing else, our excitement. Um, but I, so we start we start these with sort of like the flyover. We call them the brag Great. sheets, but yours is actually really humble. So it's not. We, it, it, I wish that there was a lot of flexing in there. You didn't do, which you know what points for you. You already have our respect in that aspect. But uh, so here's some fun about JMC. I'm just calling it. I don't know if that's if we're there yet. Um, you're in. You live in Portland with your wife Tammy. We just talked about your three kids, Jude, Moses, and Sunday, which feels like the if they don't start a band, the three of them. Those are the coolest three names. Like, I feel like the bio. Well, my my oldest is like that's what he wants to do with his life is rock star. That's like yes! his. Okay, he has, that's what... he has hair like curly hair down past his shoulders. He just got his ear pierced. He's like, 
He's 15. He looks like the lead singer of Laney or something. He's just like, <laughs> yes, that's amazing. Really? He went How? into, he went into COVID like in full on like awkward middle schooler mode. Like yeah, he yeah. gained, gained, you know, like they say boys grow like out before out they grow the, up. Yeah. Right, right, so right. he was like beanpole skinny his whole childhood, but short. And then he hit puberty and just like got really chubby and like hilarious looking <laughs> And I did this thing with him called the Primal Path, which we're still in. It's a three-year initiation right to manhood and intensive spiritual formation journey. We shaved his head on the first night, like the community of men around a fire, literally in the forest. We shaved his head, and he looked like so bad. I mean, so bad. <laughs> so he gained. Did all you have this a moment? Weight. Did you have a moment after you did that where he's looking at your eyes and you're like? <laughs> Oh, like, oh, what, what have I done? What is like, I mean, people didn't even know, is this your son? Is this your daughter? Is this, is people, I mean, honestly, it was hard to tell. So, um, but then he went into COVID and, you know, nobody's seen him for like a year. Cause we're in Portland, everything's yeah, liberals, yeah, yeah. which means you right. have to stay in your house or you're killing people. And so anyway, he's just emerged. He grew like shot up. He got super thin. His shoulders got broad. His hair is all long now. He pierced his ear. He's dressing all cool. <laughs> and he's just like, I'm, I'm ready to be a lead singer, dad. I'm ready. He had the, he had the like COVID makeover. Exactly. Everybody sees him. They're like, his voice dropped. So he has like <laughs> deep, like rock and roll voice. Like, Hey bro, what's up, dude? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, anyway. I feel like Portland, maybe more than any other city would be prime for doing that to, to a kid. Oh, just yeah. be like, we have and all so, of the things to get you there. Oh, and so, and he, so the, this is a long story, but the school system here has just been utterly co-opted by far left secular ideologies. So much to our chagrin, we finally pulled him out of the public school system, homeschooled oh, wow. him for a couple of years, which I'm sure did not help his awkward middle schooler phase. <laughs> but now he's Just gone to this <laughs> he's gone to this private Christian school out in the suburbs, and he is just the coolest thing to ever happen to that school. <laughs> He's like, Dad, these are all like kind of real <laughs> suburban, like conservative rich kids. And like they don't even know he's walking in his Doc Martin boots and his long hair. And he's traveled the world with me and he's all cultured and cool. And all the girls are just like, he is the teenage heartthrob of Christian suburban Portland oh, right now. You know? That is amazing. Dream. That is I, I did I did wonder about like the with the pandemic, like what because your son is the exact thing I was wondering about I was like I wonder what kids did that like Disney movie where you didn't see him for a year and they came back and it was like slow-mo and he's like ripped and everything's like oh my god oh my gosh you know Ew. um so you're so you guys are in Portland you have your three kids and then this is yep. this is really this is really profound and, and we'll talk about this but so you're the pastor for teaching at Bridgetown Church uh, by Powell's Books, which all of us who traveled to Portland know all about Powell's Books. Uh, you've also written My Name is Hope, Loveology, Garden City, God Has a Name, and Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which ruined my life, uh, which is <laughs> such a great book. We'll talk about that, too. Uh, you have a master's degree in biblical and theological studies from Western Seminary. Where is Western? It's in southeast Portland, right in the city. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Uh, and you are currently – this is incredible – currently working on a doctorate in no, spiritual I, for me. I nope, was you're done I, with that. I quit. Oh, you did it already. No, I quit. Oh, you quit. Touche. I actually, yeah. so th this this parlays into one of the things I want to ask first about. Um, 
at Fuller, which Dallas would have, which, uh, you know, I know how much you talk about him and amazing yes. things that man has done. Um, so, so the thing that I did notice that wasn't in there is your telecast days, which oh. I have, I have to, like John and I, I want to hear about this. Like what, when, like what, tell us about that. What you were in a band and that was like, when was that like late nineties, early two thousands? No, that would have been, I was only in telecast for about 10 minutes. That would have been <laughs> two songs, 2005. Maybe? Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, okay. 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 So I played in, I played in bands back in the day. I played in this band uh, that called Coldplay for a little while. <laughs> I don't know if you've um, heard of her. And then I played in this band called Keen for just a few <laughs> years. Uh, and then you decided to dabble in CCM. And then I just and then decided, they were like, "You're ready for telecast." And then and it's then time. I wrote I wrote this song called um, "The Stand," and uh, was just oh, kind of done done after that. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna call it. <laughs> I have nothing more to add. No, I play. So I played in bands all through high school and college. I was signed to Tooth and Nail back in the oh, day. Oh yeah, dude. Yeah. When it was so yeah. that label was the coolest. That was it. Yeah. And so um, that's kind of how I met Josh was through a previous band I played in. And then Josh, who's the lead singer of Telecast, I actually hired him for the church that I had planted as our worship pastor. And he came up and he made a record or two when we were on staff together and brought me into his office to play guitar on a couple of songs. So that's me being in Telecast. That's, no, that's, a, that's oh, okay. the most pro way of being in a band I've that ever counts. heard in my life. That yeah, totally what, what that means is like I played rhythm guitar on like three tracks and I played like, we, I mean, we used to lead worship together every Sunday. So we were, a lot of those songs were from that record were written at our church. Um, so I would, you know, play in that, but was, it was it, not, it was, uh, we were not touring the world okay, opening okay, okay. for whoever. You know. Yeah, MXPX. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, we were a little bit more audio adrenaline. Uh, a, a double A, dude. Double thing, A. You double know. A. So, so <laughs> it, that I just think that is so fascinating. I love these sort of like side winders that you go, oh, okay, telecast. Look at you. Yeah, dabbling. look at me. Look at dabbling in <laughs> in bands that never made it. Amazing. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> anybody that ever got a deal makes it. That's my role. Like it doesn't matter yeah. what happened after that. So, so here's the thing. I I, I wanted to say so a couple things. I, I literally, this is the truth. I think I have bought 15, and I'm not lying to you, 15 copies of Hurry. This oh, is no wow. lie. So I got on Amazon. I bought the first like five or six after I read it. Had them sitting in my kitchen, and literally every human that came in, I just gave them to them. And I just did a reorder of that one because I just got through with Garden City too. And if you walk in my kitchen, there are four Garden Cities. There are three Annie Downs new book. That sounds fun. And then probably five hurries just sitting Aww, for everybody. That, that is so kind. Uh, now, I, I do want to say, you, though. Thank you for helping me pay the tuition for my son's high school. <laughs> yes. that well, I can't well, we heard he transferred schools, so we want to do our part. <laughs> I can't I, really. Between the school tuition and his hair product, I have no <laughs> extra money right now. Well, there's probably product for the all. earring thing. Upkeep with that. You know, you want to go organic. Yeah, of course. But I, but I do want to say wanna, that you want to do the spray and that. Yeah, sure. You know, yeah. Dave, yeah. Uh, that all of this is true. What he what he's saying to you, and it's true. I I was in his house today. The stack of books are there. It's there. Uh, but he didn't give them to every human that walked through the door because I walked through the door every day, and he would rave about this book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and he's like, I'm just I'm giving it to everyone. 
I mean, John. he would tell me all these things. And I'm like, oh, that sounds like a really great book. And then I would leave uh, empty handed. So I, I bought my own copy right here. So I just, just want so, that to so be known. I see, I see this is a very transactional relationship between it you is, two. This is not uh, a yes. friendship. I found that out recently. Yes. This is just what, what can I get from you for this <laughs> podcast, John? It's, very, it's a very specific <laughs> transactional relationship. So, so one, just John and I both love the book. I, I mean, and this is – I'm coming in with a really hot take here, but I think of the formative sort of Christian theological books I've read in my adulthood – I think it's probably Life Together would be like number one for me. Wow, yeah. And then I, honestly, I would put Hurry not too far after that. I think for the timing wow. of it, and you know, I'm 42 now, and yeah. you can't tell I've had a lot of work done, but um, <laughs> it's uh, but it just was crazy the timeliness of that book. And I only I think I read it at the end of last year, so I, I know it had been out for a minute. It was funny too because I had a million friends tell me about it. Like I, I, I literally. Mm-hmm. Had a million friends and read it, but I, I thought you'd get a kick out of this. John and I are both in a club that's since been formed from reading the book called The Not Crushing It Club, and it was literally the inception. <laughs> oh, <that's... laughs> Listen, the inception of this club. My best friend and I go on a walk once a week, which sounds like we're eighty. And then your, your best friend, who's not John, is not John. Yes, <laughs> John <laughs> won't let me in there. Just, He's very specific. Really about his rubbing friends. it in. <laughs> you, like gave, you gave you him guys... two books. You need some therapy. Keep going. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. If you have any, you can dispense it for free right now. Uh, but but Micah and I, my buddy and I, for 20 years, best bud, we're walking, and he'd read the book too. And I was just like, gosh, this book just met. He's like, oh, my gosh. And he's like, can we make an agreement? And John, we've opened the club up. John's in the club. We have a few other friends too. He said, can we just make an agreement this year that we're just not going to crush it? He's like, because this was like January, and I was like, that is one of the best things you've ever said. And he's like, we're just going to start a club. <laughs> we're going to call it the Not Crushing It Club, mm-hmm. and our goal for 2021 is to not crush it. Yeah. And I was like, I am so all in. But that all comes from hurry. That that comes from mm-hmm. the book. It's just this like, why are we killing ourselves to try to quote unquote crush it, whatever that means? And so he and I, I saw him the other day, and I was like, how's your day? And he 100% seriously looked at me. He's like. I kind of crushed it. I was like, ah. Oh. He's like, oh, no, I'm really disappointed. <laughs> Don't kick me out. Don't kick me out. <laughs> hey, Dave. Hey, Johnny. You know what's really been bugging me lately? Uh, can I get two guesses? You can have three. Ooh, okay. First of all, at the risk of being punny, mosquitoes? Yeah. Okay. Is mm-hmm. two Le- that LeBron just can't stay healthy? Yes. Gosh. That bugs me, too. <laughs> Um, and then three, is it that your forehand is just not quite where you want it to be in your tennis game? Absolutely not, and I'm offended by that. Oh. No, I'm sick and tired of going to the store and never knowing what products to buy uh, to clean our house yep. and your house, because, you know, Amy and I have been cleaning yes, your house for a while. Yes, that does mean a lot to us. I always end up FaceTiming my wife so she can point me in the right direction to the products that are safe yeah. to bring in the house yeah. and actually get the job done. Yeah. Man, do I know that pain. Mm-hmm. And to quote Sting, I'm actually the king of that pain. Yep. Spring cleaning is here, and it's important to find products that are going to be good for the fam. Yeah. But Johnny Boy, Johnny Boy, do I know where to find that? You know where it is? Tell me. Grove Collaborative. Tell me more, Dave. Okay, you don't have to yell. Grove is the online marketplace that delivers healthy home, beauty, and personal care products directly to your front door. Grove Collaborative takes the guesswork out of going green. Browse their site for thousands of products, all guaranteed to be good for you, your family, and the planet. But you know what the best part is, John? 
boy, do I. Oh, you do. Oh, okay, well, I'll tell to you. They're all wife approved. So you're telling me I can find natural cleaning products yes. that are safe for my family yep. that come directly to my door. That's right. And get this, besides being fast and convenient, the shipping on your first order is free. Oh, my goodness. That's free dollars. Here's what I want to know. Okay. How do I sign up? Okay. And where do I receive my Husband of the Year award for this one? Let's handle those one at a time. First of all, making the switch to natural products has never been easier. For a limited time, go to grove.co slash dadville and you'll get to choose a free gift. <laughs> Jeez, these guys love free stuff. With your first order of $30 or more. But you have to use our special code. Johnny, what do you have to do? You have to use a special That's code. That's right. And the husband of the year award, if I'm remembering right, is in August. Okay. But you have to have a certain amount of squeaky clean houses to even be in the world. Okay. Well, I've got two going for me. Okay, good. So that's grove.co slash dadville to get our exclusive offer. Is That's that right? right. Yeah. Visit grove.co slash dadville today. Get your clean on. Dave, do you find do you find I'm hearing a lot of men in particular seem to get a lot of traction from like if you want to call it a club like small little groups of guys that form around some random thing can be serious can be not serious yeah. I feel like there's something about the male psychology that really seems to respond oh. to that something kind of playfully creating moments of vulnerability and yeah. some some shared values that you're working toward. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I wonder, it's something John and I talk a lot about in our friendship. Um, I think it, as I think there's just so many things, and it's one of the reasons that we've loved doing this, I can speak for me, that I've loved doing this podcast, is a place for these things that seem to be sneak attacks. You know, as you yeah. get to an age that you sort of feel like, oh, I kind of know what's going on. We, and I kind of feel like, and then it just feels like in my late 30s and 40s, it was like, I say that like I'm 50 in the beginning of my early 40s. But, you know, just these things that I just didn't quite know were going to happen or have the tools yes. to deal with. And so these, I think these sort of gatherings, these sort of collectives end up being these safe places you can kind of go like, hey. Yes. And, you know, too, and John's heard me say this quote. This is one of my favorite quotes of all time. But I heard a guy once say, uh, whenever we come together sharing our strengths, it breeds competition. But whenever we come together sharing our weaknesses, it breeds community. Yes. And so I think for men, well there is said. this beautiful place, you know, where we can sort of get together and be like, hey, do you sort of feel like this? And, and you know. Well, you I can... think that we need, like, permission. Mm. Guy, guys need permission to, to, like, be vulnerable a little bit. Like, a, yeah. you know. I remember having a conversation with a friend years ago who was studying this kind of stuff in the workplace. And she was talking about how like when two guy coworkers chat around the office, they face like this. They don't face each other. They yeah. face outward. Shoulder we to shoulder. Shoulder to shoulder. We need some sort of like triangulation. Yeah, common test. Well, men yeah. bond, men especially bond. And this isn't like gender stereotyping. I think there's data here bond yeah. around shared partnerships and tasks doing a podcast yeah. together working together playing sports together playing in a band together guys love to play music together because mm, right. you get these moments of vulnerability and humor but you're doing you're creating together you mm. know yeah and yeah. i hope that that it's i think it definitely is changing in our culture like we're all given license a little more and permission to be ourselves whatever that yeah. looks like but you know, for me, I'm 38 years old now. And so I just feel like, um, 
I want to make up for lost time a little bit. Like when I was 18, I wish I could have had the boldness and the bravery to just sort yeah. of be more who I am. Yeah. But I think, um, you know, this book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, is is one of those books that I, as I'm reading it, I'm like, this is going to be a book that I read once a year yeah. for sure. Yeah. This is like part of part of the routine. Um, and I think that it, uh, you know, I don't know how it would have hit me at 18, but it really, at 38, it really, like Dave said, is, yeah. is timely in culture and also well, just personally. Yeah, some, that's so humbling and kind, you guys. I, I think sometimes we're just not, you have to reach a certain age and you have to have a certain level of certain amount of failure under your belt before mm-hmm. you're really even, seriously, yeah. before you're totally. even ready to start having the right conversations, you know, and we live, right. it's no surprise to me that you guys are forming your little club. We live in such a first half of life culture mm. that does not prepare us. And, you know, first, second half of life is a very helpful psychological development pattern, but it's, it's not an age, it's a stage. So it's not like at 40 or at 50 or whatever, there's this arbitrary mm. shift. It's a stage thing. So for some people, they might enter a second half of life very early due to suffering or trauma or bereavement. Other people never enter it. But our entire culture is predicated upon like, how do we keep first half of life and the illusion of upward mobility going? Mm -hmm. And that is a kind of trauma, like just living. I don't mean this in a victim kind of way, but just living in the Western what my therapist calls the gospel of upward mobility yeah. is in of itself a kind of trauma because life only, and for some people, life never feels up and to the right, whether mm. it's because of racial injustice or because of poverty mm. or because of trauma or because of family of origin, all sorts of different reasons. But let's say you have a, a decent family of origin, a decent start of life, you're middle class, whatever, you have the sense of up, up and to the right nobody keeps going to the right. And so it's, it's, but culture keeps telling us go Mm. to the right. Mm. And so at some point life is no longer up and to the right. And then you face the trauma of living in a first half of life, upward mobility, performative identity, illusion of success culture. And it, it creates just massive fallout. And if you don't have, if you have people to process it with, it can be beautiful. And that can yeah. be your invitation to the inner journey, to maturity, to spiritual formation, or just to discipleship to Jesus and the inner life. But if you don't have people to process it with, mm. it's tr- it's traumatic. You know, there's a, I, have a, I randomly have a quote here on my desk open. Nothing to do with this podcast. I'm <laughs> editing a little ebook I'm writing right now. But right in front of me is this great quote from the therapist Robert Stolero. And he writes, trauma is when severe emotional pain cannot find a relational home in which it can be held. Jeez Louise. Mm. And so all the experts on trauma say that trauma, there's capital T trauma, which is not what we're talking about. Then there's small t trauma, which is what we're talking about right now. And um, meaning capital T trauma is not normative. Small t trauma is normative. It's just the trauma all of us experience living in in Western culture. Um, But what they say is that what the re- why is it that some people seem to go through trauma and come out not just okay but often stronger, wiser, and more resilient on the other side, and other people seem to be destroyed by it? And this is an oversimplified answer, but what they basically argue is the difference is not it doesn't have to do with the trauma or what type of trauma or how intense the trauma it is. The difference mostly has to do with community and relationship. If you experience mm-hmm. trauma alone, it tends mm-hmm. to be incredibly destructive. 
if you can experience trauma, whether it's major or minor, capital T or small t, abnormal or normal, with a relational home and just mm-hmm. a, a band of close relationships with that, to hold you in love and listen to you and, mm-hmm. and walk with you, then most of us not only come through it, but we actually come through strong. There's, there's literally a psychological category called post-traumatic growth where you actually grow and mature and deepen and flourish through traumatic experiences when you, know, you go through them in community. It mm. reminds me of uh, listening, which is so funny because I saw you actually posted about this, but um, my sister sent me, oh my gosh, is it uh, How We Love? Is that yes. the book? Yes. Yeah, so, so great listen, book. Listening to a, they did a, uh, you can, it's this rant, it feels like old day, old school naps where you like dig to find a talk, you know, these, that couple, that couple did at a church and my sister found it's on, it's, it's a podcast you can actually listen to, but they, they address how children can go through some of the most gnarly things in the world. And they've seen this in, in, uh, in trauma in studies around trauma, but as long as someone is sitting down with them and saying, how are you doing? Tell me how you're feeling. It's almost it's it's incredible how much they can synthesize that emotion yes. into a normal and yep. functional thing. Whereas make meaning of it, yeah, discharge yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, there's a there's a famous sociologist named James Pennebreaker who conducted with his team one of the first ever like large scale uh, research studies of trauma. And you can read uh, he has a book called Opening Up. That's like his summary of it. But it was really interesting there. He was asking this question, why do some people seem to be destroyed by trauma or traumatic experiences and other people seem to come through, like not unscathed, but come through still healthy and actually often stronger and better in their character? And his theory, like their hypothesis, they went in with a hypothesis. And their hypothesis was it's trauma that has a social stigma attached to it. Wow. And shame attached to it, that's what people can't recover. So they, they studied a few things, specifically, as you would imagine, they studied sexual assault, survivors of sexual assault. And the other thing, this is really interesting, they studied was spouses um, or who's, uh, people whose spouses committed suicide. Because they imagined if your spouse committed suicide, there would be probably a social stigma and probably an inner sense of shame that came from that, right? I don't know that from experience, but I could imagine that. They studied those two things, and they basically found that their hypothesis had zero data behind it. It was completely disproven by the research. And they concluded – their conclusion was that the nature of the trauma has almost no bearing on your capacity to recover from the trauma. And they said that almost – all people, not all, and so you have to be really careful here because a lot of people, anybody's listening who've experienced assault or really hard things, this is very tender. But almost all people who experienced trauma and had what Stolero calls a relational home, had some kind of a family or a support group or a, a loving parent or somebody to walk with them through, process the pain, discharge the pain, almost all of them made a full emotional recovery. Mm. Wow. Gosh. Now, for those listening who have been through trauma and you are alone and you know that you're living with this open wound and limp, that's where, you know, uh, the Christian tradition has some extraordinary resources to offer and what some call inner healing prayer or the healing of memories, which is kind of like charismatic listening prayer meets deep therapy. And, you know, it's something that we're learning a lot about. I'm doing with people and having done to me where you basically go back and revisit these very painful Mm -hmm. memories, but not just in the therapeutic sense of sitting with a good counselor, which is do that. That's really important. But in like a a very prayerful sense of 
listening to God and asking God, because it's not the actual experiences that damages that damage us as much as the interpretations of the experience that mm, damage us right. yeah. Yeah. and the lies and the narratives that enter into our minds. So maybe there's, you know, sexual assaults are very tender, but let's take something more common. Your parents divorced when you're young. Mm. So a lot of children then somehow begin to believe at an unconscious level, not a conscious level, the lie that my parents' divorce was my fault mm-hmm. or the lie that men can't be trusted because my dad left or women can't be trusted because my mom left or whatever. And if you were to ask them as an intelligent 32-year-old educated parent, do you believe that your wife can't be trusted because your mom left or that you know, you're a bad person and if people actually know who you are, they'll reject you and leave you? They would say, no, I don't believe that because that sounds stupid. But many of, of us actually do believe that. Yeah. There's that Catholic scholar, Michael Novak, who writes about the three levels of belief. You know, mm-hmm. there's public belief, which is what we say we believe. So this is, you know, Harvey Weinstein wearing the pro-women button before two weeks before he was found mm-hmm. out in the Me Too movement. Right. Then there's private belief, which is what we think we believe. Mm-hmm. Then there's our core belief, which is what we actually believe at a subconscious level, but most of the time we don't realize until we experience suffering or loss. Hmm. And so often our core beliefs are a little hard for us to even see. And in times of suffering, we'll realize, oh, I actually have come to believe this deep lie about my identity, Hmm. about who I am before God, about my destiny, about other people. And so whether it's therapy or inner healing prayer or, or, or something, allowing Jesus and his community to help you go back and make meaning of these memories and reinterpret these painful experiences under the love and the light of the spirit of God, that can be transformative for people. Which isn't it crazy? I feel like as I get older, two of the things that become so profound to me in being a Christian, being a believer is, and I've thought about this a lot in the last two or three years, is exactly what you just said, Jesus and his, and his people right, is the importance of one, scripture, right? Because like, how do you know anything if you you don't believe that first? So essentially, what does God have to say about these things? But then two, and I think what has become more and more profound as I've gotten older is that the body is a huge, is is central, it's so genius. God's whole thing is so smart because to your point, like when you think about how we get better from trauma, it's, it's, healing in a communal sense and that God mm. is like, yeah, that's my whole, that's the setup. <laughs> it's like people yeah. are the setup. The body is the setup. And yes. so much of the importance as I get older, I realize how thankful and, you know, John and his family are in a church too, but just how, how it goes from being this thing you do. Cause you know, you, you go and my dad's a pastor and you know, you do the thing and it's great, but man, as you get older, it becomes so necessary. And I yeah. think to navigate, it's the boat we get through the river with, you know, it's yeah. like, and I think I never got that until I started to to get old enough, really in the last two or three years of going, man, I don't know how you do this without more people. And then I think you double down, which you actually spoke to, I think maybe in Garden City a little bit about this, but this idea of like, we get so self-centric, you know, and it becomes mm-hmm. more miserable. And, and, yeah. and I, and I think, man, if there's anything that I look out and see in the world, it's this, um, if you, you know, I know, and I'm fascinated by this whole thing, but you know, the kind of like walking away from the faith and, and, yes. and what you just said to me is a, is a really profound 
insight into that because it you know and it and it always it seems to happen with the the people in my world who've struggled with that it always starts with pain yes, and i think if what always. you just said is true it's because it's the first tell of what the structure is is there really something that that I believed and maybe I didn't believe it like I did because when it yes. comes up against this bigger and stronger force, it doesn't seem to stand against that. And so I think it's, it's really fascinating to me thinking about those things and how, especially yes. now, how social media, how much we're staring at ourselves and how miserable everybody is, that we're the most non-communal in a pseudo-communal society yes you feel like you're tethered to everybody it's, because it's, of these you're things. not no 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 you know? it, it, we, we mistake connectivity for community the well said yeah well said yeah, yeah. Very so well said. it's it's what m scott peck called pseudo community and man, i could not agree more i literally taught on this yesterday in my or in my i don't know what when this airs we're recording this on a monday morning but you can edit that out. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, that's this great. Is that's the great. timeless, the timeless not, internet. Yeah, just we from time we just space. have to put this out today now. Yeah. So, But I taught on uh, deconstruction and yeah. just all the facets of that. Give my best take on why we're living through a generation-wide moment of deconstruction where so many Gen X millennials are just abandoning anything that even resembles Orthodox faith or faith in general. And I said the same thing. It almost mm. always starts with an emotional wound. Mm. And I, it got me thinking about, um, I was chatting to, this is, this is kind of a random aside, but it's, I, it has to do with what, exactly what you're saying. This is my way of agreeing with you. But um, <laughs> that's, a great, that's a great start over, to anything. <laughs> over talking is my way of agreeing with you. But I was talking to an expert on deliverance, as mm. in like demonic deliverance, as the we movie. were dealing um, no, like real life, <laughs> full on stuff. We were dealing with wow. uh, exorcism that we had oh, to wow. do a few few months ago, and it you was all a very, had to do. Yes, and it was very. Wow. It's, it's a long. It's a long story, but it was very intense, and we've been experiencing like just an extraordinary kind of manifestation of the demonic in our church and life and family, and lot. That's a separate conversation, but. In consulting with this expert before I went into this exorcism kind of prayer day, one of the things he said that was really profound is that, um, and I've read this from other experts in that same field, that emotional wounds often are the portals for the demonic into our life. Jeez Louise. Hmm. And he called it double trauma. So you have the original trauma of fill in the blank. Um, abuse, assault, death, bereavement, the trauma of having a bad church experience, mm, right. of being wounded by a spiritual leader, of mm -hmm. your pastor having a moral failing. This is all a kind of trauma. It's an emotional hurt, a wound. And then often, if those are not healed through loving community, truth, all the discipleship stuff, if they're left to fester, they often become the portal for the demonic in your life. And again, I'm not talking about like, demon possession kind of yeah. thing where some person's foaming out the mouth it could just be the portal for for i mean in this is not how western christians think but in most of church history for sure in the desert tradition the eastern tradition in the gospels for sure in paul for sure in the gospel writers the primary example of the demonic is lies that come into our mind hmm about God, about ourselves, about life. That's the primary example before all the other demonic stuff that probably comes into our mind when we think of deliverance or mm -hmm, we're imagining right. like all mm -hmm. the crazy stuff from a poltergeist movie. And that's all true. 
But you look at look at Jesus' primary interaction with the devil. It's Matthew chapter four and Luke chapter four. He's in the desert. It's a conversation between Jesus and the desert about truth and lies mm-hmm. going on most likely in the inner dialogue of Jesus' mind. Mm-hmm. And he's having to resist the perversion and warping of truth and even the warping of scripture by setting his mind on truth and trusting mm-hmm. in God. Mm-hmm. So they would say that Jesus in the desert in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, that's our primary template for demonic manifestation. Jesus in his most in-depth teaching on the devil called the devil the father of lies and said when he lies, he speaks his native language. So all that to say, I think that often emotional wounds, major or minor, and often we receive, there's no way to live in church and not receive emotional wounds from other Christians. It's going to happen at some point. Mm -hmm. Those often become the portals for demonic lies that pervert and warp our faith and often drag us away from Mm -hmm. a trusting, loving relationship with Jesus. Well, I think think that you, it requires a uh, self-awareness that yeah you know i have a million reasons why i would recommend this book uh the ruthless elimination of hurry but maybe maybe first and foremost is like there's all kinds of stats in here and i wrote down all these stats that you put in the book that blew my mind like uh you know the average iphone user touches their phone 2,617 <laughs> times a day. Is that ins- and that's I, average. That's not, it's higher for millennials. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, but my point is, I, I feel like it's so helpful for me. And I just, I finished this book maybe a couple of weeks ago. And it has sort of, um, it has sort of flipped the mirror back on myself a little bit and allowed me to see the water that I'm swimming in every day. Yes and um has allowed me to sort of see like you know i have some awareness of some of the lies that are in in my head and some of the battles that i fight and mm-hmm. maybe five ten years ago i didn't even know that some of these directions i were, was taking i was at crossroads the whole time you know yeah so i'm slowly peeling that stuff back and realizing it's a slow process of realizing okay here are some of the lies that are in my head Mm-hmm. And I'll, here's sort of the source of where they come from. And I think it requires, um, again, my number one reason to to recommend this book is like, even if you're not a believer, even if you're wherever you're coming from, read this book and take some of the practices away and you you will begin to see some of, you know, the true layers of yourself. And yeah. then that's the only way that you're going to be able to then move forward, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you know, that makes me think of a stat that's not in the book because it came out after I wrote the book. But this last year, Barna did that, like, most extensive research of 26 different countries of basically millennial Christian faith, the state of millennial Christian faith. And one really interesting stat was that the average millennial, and this would be higher for Gen Z, consumes 3,000 hours of digital content a year, and only 100, and this, this, is, and this was a measurement for Christian millennials, uh-huh. only 150 of the 3,000 is Christian content. Wow. Now, I'm not saying we just need to listen to more Christian podcasts, and that's the answer, but if your ratio of secular input 
to Jesus truth input is 20 to one. Right. That is a problem. Yeah. Like that, yeah. There's no way that's not going to warp your faith and your well, you view know, of God and yourself and the world. You said something, and this is something that I think is so fascinating about your story that you, that you lead off with in Hurry and you actually reference in Garden City is – I don't know if you remember that about your own books, but I thought I'd remind you. I, um, I don't. To clarify, I don't go back and read my own books. I don't. I'm I don't like, oh, this is great. Either. I'm taking notes and highlighting. Um, <laughs> God, that's good. Who was that? That was me? Uh, oh, my God. It must be the spirit. Uh, um, but, but I think something that's so unique and really profound about your story, and it has to do with everything we've talked about because it has to do with, um, one, you know, when I read um, Falling Upward, which is – such a seminal book on this idea, as is halftime. You know, these books mm -hmm. that are about this kind of two, the first part of life, the second half of life. Yes. Um, and, and you spoke to sort of up and right, you know. But your story is so fascinating to me, and I'm always enamored with people that go small. They're like, no, I'm going mm -hmm. small here. I, I can go big or I can go small and go small. And I think, um, to your point, one of the other things that I think is really fascinating that I'm – I I've, I would pay you a million dollars because you could do this because you're smart enough. But here's someone really eloquently speak on – it could be a war between you and Malcolm Gladwell. But like is how success to me is just, a much, just as much of a trampoline into that same dilemma is how you know it can be tragedy. It can be uh, loss. But it also – success is this really – to me, it's the most backdoor of all of them because it seems so good. And yeah. you go through it, and then you're suddenly on the other side of this thing. It's, it's Solomon's quest. It's what he warned us about. He tried to shot call this years ago, and nobody – we still don't pay attention. But, you know, that, that he that, – that we go, wow, I'm through this thing now, and it's not giving me this stuff. It's not right. doing the thing, right? And, and so I think you have to – it's exactly what John was saying. You know, you have to have this self-awareness, but the world is always going to go – Big, 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 go big, go big, big. Right. And so it's, I love this about your story that you went, I did the mega church thing. It was, and, and I think everybody that would have any sense would look from the sidelines is going, look at JMC's crushing it. It's happening. But you had to have this moment. Everybody of, except for my wife and well, kids. Touche, touche. Like, he's sure. exhausted and Where's not dad? and grouchy and irritable <laughs> yes. all of the time. Right, right. But I think like you had to go through this catharsis moment to go, you know, one, I'm not thriving. This is not. But two, you have to know yourself. You have to go, yeah. this doesn't fit with what. And so I'm always fascinated by this thing that the world sort of goes, hey, you owe us these things. You got that gift, give it to us. But then yeah. God has this weird way of going like, no, here's actually what I need you to do. And the, and the collision of those things is fascinating to me, you know, and how people mm -hmm. navigate that, I think, as parents, how we navigate that, what calling looks like, what you talk so much about in Garden City. But it's a, I love seeing that in you because I always think that is one of the, I think as a believer, it's one of the most profound and loudest ways we can speak into the culture is to go, you talk about this with Sabbath, you know, to fight against the tide, to go, I'm not going bigger, I'm going smaller, I'm going more intentional, I'm going yeah. more focused, you know, especially when you have a gift, like when God has obviously given you a really substantial gift to go my iteration of this gift is not as big as the world iterates it. Yeah. That's yeah. so fascinating to me. Like, how, how, how did you land? Like, I know a lot of that was hard, but that had to be really hard. I'm sure people in your life were like, dude, what are you doing? You know? Oh, people told me I was turning my back on God's call in my life. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, I yeah. felt, yeah, and I felt like all my 
most important days were all behind me and I would mm. just kind of manage mediocrity until I died. <laughs> Honestly, that, would those you, was, would those you write a book called Managing Mediocrity? <laughs> <laughs> I would love you know, I mean, I, I got to it how most of us get to it through pain, through the failure of success yeah. and the hidden God, failure that comes from that comes from success. And, and for, um, the, for those who don't know the, the scenario we're referring to here, you, you were preaching like six sermons a, a, a week or a weekend, right? You got, you're just crushing it. And then you decided you went to your church and you said, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to do one campus I'm preaching, you know, to one campus a week. I'm going to yep. really scale down and be like the uh, teaching pastor, whatever. Yeah, yep, yeah, exactly that. Just yeah. to give people yeah. a reference, yeah. Yeah, we planted a church. It grew really fast. It was really big. I was a disaster emotionally and relation <laughs> and relationally. There's no, there's no like scandal per se. There's yeah, nothing yeah. like you know, there's yeah, a right. big secret that came out or something. But um, I was just really. But you uh, just knew. Immature. I know. Yeah. I mean, it it was a really sobering moment where I realized you, I could be a success as mm. a mega church pastor this, mm. with a couple asterisks there and a and a failure as a disciple of Jesus and a human being. Wow. A, a failure. And I, I look, you know, you get to a certain age. There's this cool thing that's like when you're in your 20s, you feel your your human nature feels really like plastic and pliable. Like through your twenties, you're asking the question, like, who will I become? Like I used to play music and the author thing is like a little bit similar in that you're trying to make it, yeah, you know? Right. And so you're sitting around, like you probably all have friends that are your age that are like still trying to make it. And you're like, yeah. bro, you didn't make it. It's okay. <laughs> be a mechanic, be a pastor, yeah. be a plumber. It's yeah. okay. You're, you're not going to be the next Bono or whatever, you know? But there's that sense of like you're waiting around for the. I remember waiting around for Toby McKeon for Goatee Records to call. Would he call me? And he oh, eventually man. did. But I remember like <laughs> literally waiting by my first cell phone I ever had, my Sprint cell phone. Like anytime a phone number would come that I didn't recognize, I pick it right up. Is this Toby McKeon? Is this is this Goatee Records? Please BS. I was like, no, this is uh, this is an infomercial or whatever, you know. But there, I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. But there's this sense of kind of waiting around for success to happen. Hmm. And you don't you don't realize how how you don't realize how traumatic much of that is. And so anyway, all that to say, in your 20s, you have the sense of who will I become? I'm plastic. This anything could happen. Mm -hmm. But that what 20 somethings don't realize is that feeling goes away. <laughs> and it is replaced by like, dang, this is who I became. <laughs> seriously and i don't mean and i have a high horizon of possibility for spiritual formation and at a character level i still think the best is you know i'm really hopeful for who i'll become in my 60s and 70s over the long haul of you know what peterson called the long obedience in the same direction mm -hmm. but by my 30 kind of by 30 early 30s i had enough time under my belt that i could then i could then chart the kind of trajectory of my character arc and mm -hmm. i could imagine myself at that point at 40 50 60 70 and who i imagined myself to be based on data points of the last 30 years was really sobering mm -hmm. because i saw somebody that was still an orthodox christian and faithful to his wife at a sexual level but mm -hmm. after that i saw an unhappy marriage an irritable um unhappy person 
some a leader who was obsessed with power and not aware of his shadow side, kids that probably wanted nothing to do with the church because church was dad's mistress in a sense you know what i mean that was who dad had an affair with he was sexually faithful to his wife but he just worked all the time tried to find his identity and meaning and sense and success as a pastor author whatever Mm -hmm. and i just saw my like it just looked like an empty hollow who wants that you know Mm -hmm. and so it was a really sobering moment stephen covey uh has that famous exercise that really every man every person should do Mm -hmm. at some point where he has you write your eulogy in advance. Have you heard about this? He has mm. you sit down and you write the eulogy that you would want said at your funeral. Mm. Mm. And, and then you work backwards, backwards. from there. Yeah. Like if that's what I want, you know, David Brooks in his book, The Road to Character, which is a great book, by mm. the way, has um, in his other, his newest book, Sense Then's Even Better, The Second Mountain. But in the intro to Road to Character, he talks about what he calls resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. And he talks about how our culture is all built around resume virtues. Like, okay, cool. So Dave, like you're a singer-songwriter. How many records have you sold? How successful are you? How much money do you have? Where do you live? What's your family? What's your thing? What do you drive? Like all the resume stuff. But when we die, nobody freaking cares. Mm. And we don't care. What matters is who we became Mm. and the people we became that person with. It's what, you know, two authors I love call our relational soul, right? That's all that will last into eternity is who we have become through our discipleship to Jesus and the relationships we have forged along the spiritual path. That is what will be here 10,000 years from now. Not any of this. Who cares if my book sells a lot of copies or no copies, if people like me or hate me, if my church is this size or that, just none of that even matters, you know? Mm -hmm. So all that to say that there's something, I had that, that existential, like, I feel like I had an early midlife crisis and I realized, man, I'm on a trajectory based on Western up and to the right, what resume virtues, Mm -hmm. not on eulogy virtual virtues character way of jesus relationships what who am i as a husband as a father and that's not to say that now you know however many years later i have it all down and i'm never tired and i'm always unhurried and i'm just (laughs) i'm just like the walking jesus zen awesome guy you know like the christian the dude yeah. You're the I'm big not, Lebowski, but the Christian version. I am not, you know, David Brooks says you have to write yourself into a better life. And so that's why I wrote that book and it, it didn't solve all my problems. It turns out it's still hard to slow down and live inside your limits and be present. You you speak to this. And one of the things that I think it, it really, I think of all the things you said in the book. And again, you, you, you sort of hint at this. This is why Garden City is such a fun read especially after her, even though they're not in chronological order, because you see you sort of beginning the riff, you know, you can yeah. see you sort of yes. exploring, but not really, you know, it's like the beginning yes. of, of the, it's like the, the beginning of that sort of theme before it gets actually written. But, you know, y- your thoughts on Sabbath have just been so challenging. And I think, um, and obviously they're not native to you, but I think you've done such a good job sort of um, extrapolating and sort of expanding on that theme. And I think what you say that's so great about slowing down is what hurry is about. You know, the book is really about is, is to, to know ourselves, know the Lord more. You got to have the space. There's a speed. Love, love has a speed, as you say. It's like, and so I think to your point about um, how do we do these things better? How do we not get into these 
things where everything is so frenzied and we don't know ourselves and we're making decisions that are counterintuitive to how we're actually made, you have to have this way of living at a pace where you can actually think and contemplate and go, do I like this? Do I want to do this? Am I happy? Does this feel native to what I'm doing? I would love, I, I know, uh, you know, you've got to go, you've got all those people who love and want you. But one of the, <laughs> the couple things that I, I feel like we'd be remiss for not just sort of having you talk a little bit on quickly is, this, which boy, the irony there. Do you love that? Quickly. Yes. Quickly. Speak on the Sabbath quickly. But, but can you, I really think, again, hurry to me ruined me but man the, the death knell to me was this and it's something i'm trying to practice more my wife and i were talking about this last night is just how to do that like and and i've and you know i watched your video on the workbook which was so helpful the ways that you've sort of said what you've got into your you know you and your family's life and it's incredible and wildly overwhelming but <laughs> how would you sort of for those who are listening who who i think are probably like me they mean well and they think of the Sabbath and they do church and they, and it's a little slower than the rest of the days. But I think the way you say it is a pushback one, which is so profound to me. It's not just resting. It's a pushing back against the weight and the inertia yeah. of, of just sort of our culture. But w w how would you sort of give like the, the, the thought of that? What would be like a good introductory thought to those of us who are like, I want to do that better. I just kind of don't know how or how to think about it. Yeah. Well, I would say two very simple things. One is start with the end in mind. Hmm. So, you know, you have to start with like, what's the ache in your heart and who do you want to become? And then hmm. back your way up to habits like Sabbath that will habituate you into hmm. the, into the vision of the life that you want to have. So that's the Stephen Covey, write your eulogy. You know, what you're talking about metrics for success, our culture hands us metrics for success. Hmm. And so if we accept them and our family of origin hands us metrics for success, so if we accept them uncritically, if they're good, great. If they're not good, problem. So like, take a little time to talk, dream, pray with your spouse, friends, journal, and attempt to articulate what are your metrics for success? Is happiness even, is, is that even the right metric? That's actually not one of my mm. metrics for success. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think often you can be following, I'm not super happy right now. I'm leading a church through COVID-19 in a city that has experienced extraordinary social unrest and demonic oppression. I'm not, the last year has not been a, a happy year for me. Do I have joy in God? Yes. Are my morning mm -hmm. prayer times rich? Am I grateful? Yes. Am I like walking around laughing and happy right now? No, not really. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a form of leadership right now is a kind of a form of suffering. And that's God's call on my life right now. Was Jesus always happy? No. So I'm, I'm not. I'm not down on happiness. I'm. I'm pro happiness, but you know, people use happiness to justify all sorts of sinful things, like divorce. I mean, it's one of the primary justifications for divorce, and many other things. So you have to identify. And I can't do that for you. And I would strongly encourage you to let Jesus help you define your metrics for success, because <laughs> I think He probably knows better than you and I do what will actually make for a happy life. You know. As Ignatius of Loyola said, sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. Jeez, so anyway, first, start with the end in mind. What's the, what's the kind of life? How do you want to die? What's the eulogy you want said? What are your metrics for success? If you, if you could say this is a life lived well, could you articulate that on a one-sheet piece of paper? And then back up and say, all right, so what are some habits to actually 
move me toward that long-term goal. So if my goal is I want my kids to grow up to love and follow Jesus, and I want to have a great relationship with them. All right, what are some habits to work toward that? Family dinners, Sabbath, me and therapy, dealing with my shadow side, like, you know, a parent mentor, whatever, this a thousand different things. Like, do your own thing, habits. Second thing I would say, first is start with the end in mind. Second is start where you're at, not where you feel you should be. So, you know, um, the experts on habits, like I'm just reading PJ Fogg's little book, Tiny Habits right now. And his whole thing is that, yes, habits are kind of the, the, the silver bullet for a lot of things. But the problem is if people start with too large of habits, they don't stick and they mm-hmm. fall off the bandwagon. This is the New Year's resolution of it. So he has a whole book like on the psychology behind what he calls tiny habits. So, for example, he says, if you're trying to floss your, te- floss your teeth every day and you can't like most of us then start, like this is not a joke, you literally start by flossing one tooth every night before bed, one tooth. And then you look in the mirror and you smile. And apparently the smile does some like neurobiological thing to seal the habit in your brain. Like you associate it with a happy feeling. And like, you just do one tooth a night. And so, and that's like where a lot of us are. are. We're like, Mm. I can't floss all of my teeth every night before I can do one tooth. I, I can do that. So if you apply that logic to spiritual disciplines, hmm. um, start where you're at. So if you're not ready to actually step into the full orb of Sabbath, and Sabbath is a hard one because it's a really high bar of entry. It is mm-hmm. by definition a 24-hour time period. Hmm. And so that's really hard. Like there are other disciplines like scripture or silence and solitude that you can do in short spurts. They're way better long. But there's still you can at least do a version of them short. Sabbath yeah. is like by definition a 24-hour time period, and it be you could get a doctor on to talk about the neurobiology mm. of what happens to your body over a 24-hour time period and why the experience of Sabbath over 24 hours is categorically different than a four-hour afternoon off or something. Mm-hmm. But so I think you should work toward that. But for a lot of people, that's way too high of a bar of entry. That's trying to like floss your teeth and double brush them and put whitener on them and sp- like start where you're at. So if where you're at is, hey, uh, let's go to church. We've already go to church on Sunday. Maybe after church, let's keep our phones at home in a cupboard for three hours and let's do brunch as a family or let's mm. do brunch with another family that we love. And let's just be present to each other. Talk about our highs and lows from the week, a couple gratitudes and just sit and relax. And then we'll go do our laundry and do the things we need to do and run our errand and whatever. So if that's where you're at, like church and a restful meal, great, start Mm. there. And then try to inch your way forward based on where you're at. How long did it take y'all to get to where you are now? It took us years because my uh, wife and I weren't on the same page. So my wife is the opposite of me, which is why she's so much more wonderful than I am on so many levels. <laughs> Anybody who knows. That's a theme here on Dadville. Yeah, I'm familiar with that setup. People may read me or podcast my books, but in real life, nobody would prefer to hang out with me over my lovely wife, she, who is so much more fun than me and the opposite. So I'm a rule follower. She's a rule breaker. I'm an introvert. She's an extrovert. I'm a OCD planner. She's totally spontaneous, fly by the seat of her pants. So for her, Sabbath just sounded like more rules. And, you know, Sabbath takes prep work and takes planning yeah. in order to actually yeah. like 
for example, to turn your phone off for 24 hours and to not have to, oh, I have to answer that email, I have to do this, I have to run that errand, all that stuff's done other time. That takes a fair bit of like structure, planning, you know, organization to your your week flow. Mm. So that's just like, she hates that stuff, mm. you know? And she had no theological paradigm for it. It was just mm. a weird legalistic thing. <laughs> and it kind of got into our marriage, like the rule person wants to add a whole new rule and this rule is 24 <laughs> hours long, no thank you. So we were just not, and I didn't have anybody to mentor, and I didn't come from a tradition that had Sabbath. I literally read this random little book by Abraham Joshua Hashel or Heschel on the Sabbath. I'd never even thought about the Sabbath before. I think I'd heard Pete Scazzaro like say a couple of things about it. I'm like, what is the Sabbath? Is that like for Seventh Day Adventists and Jews? Like, what is that for? You know. Mm. So it took us. It took me years to even get my head around the theology of it, my body into the practice of it, and then once my wife got on board and kind of got the why behind it and then started to actually taste it in her body what it it has transformed us and now she's like more into it than I am so it's such an anchor part of our family's life together because it's an incredibly bonding time for our family like we're together for the sabbath yeah and so it's like it's also like family day too in a sense you know so anyway it took us all that it's a long way of saying it was years before yeah. Sabbath was even like a super disciplined rhythm in our life. Mm. And, and it was joy. And part of that is because we didn't have anybody mentor us. So part of what I'm trying to do is like, what maybe took us seven years, let me help, let me help people figure out how to do that in seven months, you know, mm. like, mm. here's some practices, here's some mm. teachings, here's a step by step, here's a workbook, like, let me walk, we did, we've done a practice for it for our church, like, let me walk you into that, it shouldn't have to take you that long, but there's always a time arc with any, there's a, I'll end with this, learning theorist, is not a Christian concept, just a learning theorist concept, talk about the J-curve, so if you can, you can Google this if you want, the J-curve, but if you can imagine a graph of time on one axis and difficulty on the other axis, when you start a new behavior, it often gets, you get worse at it, and it's, re it's really hard at first, and you tend to feel worse at it, and then you get better with it over time. So let me use a music example. I remember when I first started playing guitar back in the pre-YouTube days when you actually had to learn guitar from like people and you had to be like, bro, show me a lick or show me a new chord. You couldn't just Google like new chord or whatever or have some like wicked smart person teach you on YouTube, right? You actually had yeah. to like talk, find a person to teach you guitar. So I remember like most guitarists, I when I started picking, I did it all all down, you know what I mean? Oh, all yeah, down yeah, strokes yeah, yeah, yeah. or whatever. Right. Yeah. And then I somebody told me like, oh, actually you're supposed to go down up, down up, down up. And if you do all down, you can never pick past a certain speed and it'll slow you down. So you actually need to reteach yourself how to pick by going down, up, down, up. And I remember when I'd been playing guitar long enough that I felt like I was not good yet, but proficient. And then when I started trying to pick down, up, down, up, down, up, I was horrible. All these things that before, these licks I could play, these little you know pieces I could play sounded crappy and I was missing notes and playing clumsy and slow. I got worse and then eventually I got back to where I was and then eventually mm. I got twice as good. Yeah. So yeah. what happens for a lot of people is they're like, I already have a day off. I enjoy my day off. It's not really a Sabbath, but I like we have church and we do these things and it's fun. And then they'll try to practice Sabbath and they feel it's like the, the emotional equivalent of trying to learn to relearn re to pick. It's mm. like, you just, I, this is horrible. I'm stressed out. I'm anxious. We didn't do these things. I'm itching mm. for my phone. 
and they feel like, why would I do this? And then they give up right about the bottom of the J curve. Mm. Again, Google yeah. this. They give up right at the bottom, right when it bottoms out and you're about to start getting better. Like this sucks. I'm not doing this. <laughs> and I'm like, just stick with mm. it. You'll eventually get back. And then it will just, it will become extraordinary as you, it's a skill. It's an embodied skill, like playing the piano or playing guitar or riding a bike or playing soccer. You have to get it into your muscle memory because Sabbath is something you do with your body, not just your mind. Mm. And that's the gift of it. But that means it takes your body time to relearn new circadian rhythms and habits and ways of being. And once it relearns it, the beauty of the body is how God created it. This is the problem of sin and the gift of spiritual formation is the body will just naturally start to do it for you in the same way that you get in a car or on a bike. And you're not thinking about how to drive a car or ride a bike anymore. Your body has now memorized. There was a time when it was really hard. It took a ton of effort and discipline, and you were scared about it. And now you don't even think about it. Your body has memorized how to do it. And uh, this is the problem of sin, because our body does this with sin too. And it's the gift of spiritual formation. So at first, Sabbath will feel like riding a bike or learning to play the piano. It will feel like you just suck. But eventually, as it gets into your body's muscle memory, like you will just every Friday evening, I, my body just has this like experience of calming and my mm. whole body just begins to transition and my mind begins to slow and my spirit starts to feel deep emotions, which are not often good. And then those emotions start yeah. to pass through me. Like there's just this thing. My body mem- remembers the Sabbath now yes. and lives in the Sabbath. And so all that to say, stick with it. So I'd say, you know, Start with the end in mind, start where you're at, not where you should be, and stick with it. God, that's amazing. Well, and for, for people uh, who are going to try, I will say from personal experience, because I just tried this yesterday, uh, I just finished your book, you know, two weeks ago, we tried it yesterday, right? And like, just a heads up, you're going to feel... I mean, all the things that the book describes about, like all the, you know, like, we, I wanted to try to not buy anything. Right. I wanted to try to like, let's not, I don't want to be on my phone. There's all kinds of stuff. I was hit with like a rush of, I have never wanted my, it was almost like my brain saw everything that we needed in the house so clearly. Like whenever my wife is like, Hey, I'm making a, you know, shipped order. Do we need anything? I'm like, I can't think of anything right now. Like there's no way in that like Sunday morning, I was like, Oh, we don't have any milk. I need my espresso with with milk. I can I I had this clear list of everything that we needed and I also like I just want like all those people that I forgot to text last week it's all coming to me. Paramount. So just buckle up cuz you're going to be hit with uh, a a wave of tasks. It's like my dad always said if you ever forget what you need to do for the day just act like you're praying. And all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, I need to, oh yeah, and have that lunch thing. Uh, okay, so, 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 John Mark, the couple things that we have two questions we ask everybody before we uh, send them back into the wild. Um, and I'm, I would love to know what you, you know, it sounds like you've actually I thought about this. You, you're sort of cheating, but uh, I'll ask the first one. What is the one thing that you want your kids to know? Oh, just how good God is. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's a great answer. You're a pro. That was good. All right. Uh, last question here. And before I ask it, um, I do just want to say thank you so much for doing this podcast. We were so excited. And um, I don't know if you read the fine print on the email, but you did sign up for nine more 
um, <laughs> sessions with us. So I, I, I miss that. So, so, so <laughs> yeah, sorry. It's okay. It's okay. Well, it's okay. I'll I'll have a, a new, a new part-time job for Dad Bill. But. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> um, okay. So what is it that you want your kids to say at your funeral? What's that eulogy? Mm. Now you're putting me on the spot. I did that exercise like 10 years ago. I would want them to talk about someone, not who was perfect, but who was aware of his failures and who was transformed over time. So I would love to them to talk mm. about, this is what dad was like when I was little and this is who he became over the 60 years I knew him. Mm -hmm. And this is what Jesus did to him as mm -hmm. he continued to surrender to Jesus in quiet prayer and community. And that gives me hope for who I can become in Jesus. You know, you I'll know? say this quickly that uh, we had our buddy Matt Carney on a couple of weeks ago and Matt, I've thought about this so much and it's so funny you brought that up, but I think I just want to say this because I think everybody that's listening, this is a profound thing to me. I think it's easy for me to forget that even as parents, we're changing. And I that, now that sounds ridiculous because yeah. of course we are, but I think sometimes to me, if I'm not careful as a parent and maybe those who are listening feel the same way, it's like you're just trying to get the stuff you know to do right, right. That's enough change. You're just trying to nail I, I know, think you're just so, trying to survive, yeah. You're just trying to survive. Yeah. But you say it well. I think it's so important to remember we're always in flux, always. Yeah. We're always getting to be, hopefully to be more like God and, and change. But I think that to me is a profound gift to our children is that yes. it wasn't like dad sort of nailed it at 45 and then he was 30 years, 40 years of that. It's that no. he was always changing, apologizing, you know, loving, fixing uh, and that's getting, that's getting yeah. an A plus plus score as a dad is not an option. Yeah, that's right. We, that's right. We that's we right. will sin against our kids and we will wound our kids and we will mm. pass sin on to the next generation. Mm. But repenting and being humble and changing over time is all an option with Jesus. Jesus. No better way to end this. Dude, you are the best. Thank you for coming. Oh, you Thank guys you are so great. Much, man. Maybe not nine more, but let's do another one <laughs> this fall or something. You know? Dead fish.